This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnoffs, and this is the February Room. On December 1st, one of the premier trout fisheries in the West, the Madison River, went from 640 cubic feet per second to 200. With water levels dropping during the trout spawn, people had to act quickly to save a river that they love. One of those people is Bill Pfeiffer, Outreach Coordinator for Montana Trout Unlimited. Bill was at ground zero and can explain what exactly happened on one of our most beloved rivers. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bill. I am happy to join you. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. And as I had said, the Madison River is a very beloved river. And maybe before we kind of go into the information of what exactly happened on December 1st, you can kind of share a story about what makes this river so special to you. Sure. Um, You know, the Madison is really special to me. Um, I think one of the most memorable days I ever had fishing in Montana was on the Madison. Uh, a long time ago now (laughs) really (laughs) makes me realize just how long it's been that I've lived here. Um, but yeah, you know, I had a really magical day, uh, on the upper Madison, uh, among many, honestly, I've had many great days in the upper Madison, but, um, I think my favorite day would have been a day. My, my best friend and I, uh, just happened to catch a mother's day caddis hatch from the beginning 
to the end. Uh, we got to fish all stages of the hatch and uh, it's certainly, I think, the most trout I've ever caught in one day in Montana that I'm aware of. Um, so uh, yeah, it was just a really special, special day. I think Chris caught his biggest brown trout that day, like two or three times over. Like we kept like stopping to take pictures because he was like, I think this one's bigger than the last one. Um, <laughs> just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I mean, this was before most of us had smartphones. So, you know, all the pictures I have from that day were shot on film, you know, on, uh, on my old 35 millimeter. And uh, I still get those photos out once in a while to look at them. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it's a pretty magical place. And I think, you know, we really got to see just how how much people love this river, not just here in Montana, but all around the world. Well, and like as I said, I mean, it is really one of the most premier places to go fishing in the West. Uh, we had my Justin and I went fishing there not too long ago this past um, summer. And what I love about the Madison is just how the locals in that area, they are so incredible. Like I know how people like Montanans can be pretty, um, like not wanting to share their information mm -hmm. or their love. But um, when we were there, we had so many locals coming up to us, giving us tips on what to use. And so it's just a really magical place. So yeah. maybe you can give us some information sure. on what exactly happened on December 1st. Sure. Um, so, you know, our understanding of what happened is uh, that basically there is a rod um, that, hold, that, you know, basically raises and lowers the gate on the dam. Um, and one of those rods for one of the gates, uh, snapped. Um, you know, I don't know if they, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're, we're going to find out more about, you know, maybe why that happened. I mean, it is an old dam. Um, you know, and, and basically what happened when that happened was the river essentially, you know, got reduced by more than half. Um, and so, you know, the, the main impacts, I'd say the most severe impacts to the river were definitely in the section between the lakes. Uh, it's commonly what we call it between the lakes. Uh, it's the stretch of the river uh, that flows in between Hebgen Dam and uh, Quake Lake, which was formed by the landslide uh, from the earthquake in the 50s. So, um, you know, th that's where the main, you know, the main impacts were felt, especially immediately. Um, it kind of took a good period of time for those flows then to like start to impact further down the river. Most of the impacts below Quake Lake were limited to side channels. Um, and I'd say most of the, the impacts in general were limited, limited to the side channels. But um, basically what happened was the fish didn't really have a chance uh, to know that they needed to move uh, to deeper water. Uh, and so we had a lot of fish that got stranded. I think a lot of the larger fish got moved pretty quickly, uh, by people, you know, by the locals who were, who were working on it right away. Um, but you know, we were part of a very large effort to move some of those juvenile fish as well. Well, and I was reading actually an article written by Sam Lundgren from mm -hmm. Meat Eater. And what's interesting is reading about the, um, is it Hebgen, Hebgen Dam? Am I pronouncing it? Yeah, Hebgen any? Dam and Hebgen, Hebgen Lake, yes. Is that there seemed that there was Northwestern Energy had had some tools to let us, to let them know like when levels were going lower. And mm -hmm. at one point it seemed like maybe someone thought it was just a malfunction of the alert 
telling them that that was going on. Yeah, is that I think, correct? Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't I don't really have that information. I don't know what what they were getting on the ground. You know, I do think that, you know, we frequently have stream gauge malfunctions. You know, I think this brings up a different issue, uh, yeah. which might be for a whole. I mean, we could probably have a whole nother podcast on this. <laughs> but just the fact that USGS what, uh, sites in Montana uh, and I think all around the country are losing funding. Uh, and, you know, these sites are really important, uh, but further, I mean, not to digress too much, but, you know, it's very possible. I know from checking USGS sites every day that sometimes they just malfunction. Yeah. Um, indeed, we actually had some people commenting online on, on Wednesday <laughs> or on Tuesday who were like, um, isn't it just the gauge? Are you guys sure that, you know, you know, people were like, yeah, we're, we're standing next to the river. We're, we're pretty sure it's not the gauge. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think the thing that's concerning for us was the response time, you know. Yes. Um, Wasn't it like 12 hours? It was a while before before people took action. And I, I you know, I can't really speak to it, uh, like I said, without, you know, the benefits of more information. But from, you know, from my perspective, especially, it seemed like the response time was was the major issue. Um, you know, I think I think we have to be careful uh, and, and, you know, find out what exactly happened um, before we, you know, start start, you know, uh, I guess, you know, pointing fingers too much. Um, sure. Then that's not to say that there shouldn't be accountability uh, for, for something if, if something happened. Uh, you know, the the main electro fisher in my crew was a Northwestern Energy employee. So, um, you know, he was out there uh, and is, was as dedicated to moving those fish as we were. Um, you know, obviously he's a biologist, so he probably doesn't interact much with, you know, people uh, in... Uh, in the dam engineering department. So, um, you know, it's, it's, we'll have to wait and see what exactly happened. Um, but we definitely need to, to think, I think, start to consider about how do we respond to these sorts of things? Because there was just a lot of misinformation running around that day. Uh, and it could be solved if we had a better way, you know, a better, more planned response for these sorts of incidents. Well, and it's almost kind of like the boy that cried wolf, right? When mm -hmm. machines keep going down, you're probably like, it's just, it's a malfunction. Promise you. Like the water, there's no way the water is dropping that low, but it does seem like maybe the dam has some um, infrastructure that needs some updating. And it's yeah. crazy because didn't they have to go to Anaconda to get the piece made in order to like fix yeah, it? Yeah, I think that's actually a good thing. I mean, I think they actually were able to find somebody, you know, relatively close to the dam who was able to fabricate the piece. Um, wow. You know, I think, um, you know, I was actually pretty impressed, I think, with how they handled it. You know, I mean, pretty scary job, I think, to, to put on a wetsuit and scuba gear. Uh, and dive down, uh, you know, maybe over a hundred feet into a uh, malfunctioning dam. <laughs> um, not a job Terrifying. I would want, um, you know. And, and I mean, I thought it was pretty amazing that they were able to just build a new piece uh, and get it installed. You know, I think, uh, you know, like I said, from our perspective, the the issue was more, hey, we definitely have a problem here, and uh, we need to be able to be able to transmit that to you guys as quickly as possible. Uh, the last time, it's kind of interesting, somebody was also asking me, has, haven't there been malfunctions with this dam in the past? And I think the last one was in 2008, uh, if I remember correctly. And uh, 
we had the opposite problem. Um, <laughs> she had too much water. And my friend, my good friend, Josh DeShadow, who, who you can see in the photos that uh, are included with this, um, he, he's the head guide at the Firehole Ranch in West Yellowstone. And so uh, the, the Upper Madison's his backyard. You know, he's, it's his office. It's his place where he goes when he's not working. Um, it's a special place for him. And it was cool that we got to, you know, work together you know, having spent so many great days angling on the river to spend the day together, you know, trying to save the river was awesome. Um, but he was actually, he and, uh, he and his ex were actually fishing, uh, the day that the dam malfunctioned last time. And, uh, it's like his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend. Yes. His ex-wife. Yeah. I mean, they're still close, but, uh, anyway, anyway, they were, they were fishing. Uh, I think they still fish sometimes. Uh, but yeah, uh, they were fishing and, uh, and the sheriff showed up, you know, Josh was like, I, I noticed something was wrong because logs were coming by and that doesn't really happen on the Madison. But uh, yeah, he was interrupted fishing by the sheriff who was like, you, you need to seek higher ground like immediately. Um, so and that was back in 2000. That was in, in 2008. So I think that was the last, you know, issue um, that I'm aware of with Hebgen Dam. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, I think this brings up, you know, why infrastructure is so important. This is an earthquake zone. Um, you know, and the river's already been blocked once by an earthquake. So it's, it's definitely something that we should, you know, really be paying close attention to in, in the future. Well, and what I thought was really interesting about when this all happened is that we also had a high temperatures during that mm-hmm. time. And in the, in the moment it was kind of in Montana, I was like, this is ridiculous. We should not was be freaky. Like in yes. mid sixties. But then reading about how that might have actually been a good thing during this time, because then the water levels didn't freeze. Yeah, totally. Um, it was no. weird that that actually worked out. I mean, not trying to say that global warming is anything that works out, but this time it was like, well, at least it didn't get to those freezing temperatures where those puddles would have frozen and, mm-hmm. you know, cause more destruction. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it was pretty cold when we got out of the car there in the morning. Um, but, you know, I really think we well, obviously we have to wait and see with the long term impacts. As far as trout reds and trout eggs are concerned, the eggs just mainly need to be kept moist and not freezing. You know, we have to remember that back in the 1880s, they actually put trout eggs and in, into a, a I don't know what they put them in. I think coffee cans or something and ship them across the ocean. <laughs> so there's certainly some viability there still. And some of those reds, you know, that I think that was the most alarming thing for me when I showed up to the river um, was just, you know, there's a really pretty famous side channel uh, right above the, um, the cabin Creek uh, campground. And, and it's definitely a place where a lot of big brown trout spawn. Um, I think it's actually also the place where if you are familiar with the old video of Jack Dennis catching the giant brown trout, um, or Bob Jacklin, I mean, catching the giant brown trout, I think that's where it was. Uh, but seeing that side channel, you know, mostly dried up and seeing all those reds in that area that, 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 that hit pretty hard, honestly, um, just cause it's such a, such a big spawning area you know, for Quake Lake. Um, but I also think that that's a good thing because I think because there's so many fish in Quake Lake, um, you know, th- there's definitely a lot of room for recovery in that stretch as well. But it was it was hard to see. Well, and also like you kind of were talking about like the information about how they wanted people to help because I was mm-hmm. obviously keeping an eye on it. 
And in the beginning, they're like, please don't come. We don't want you to stop. We don't want people to come out here and step on the beds. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden when things weren't getting better, it was like, no, 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 come out here. We need, we need volunteers. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it was a really tough situation. I, I think I said that a bunch in our social media posts. I mean, but first, you know, I got, I first got a message from people on the ground there. Um, and I think FWP on the ground originally uh, saying, hey, we could use a fish rescue here. Um, then I think Northwestern basically came back and was like, hey, we're not sure what the problem is. But if we get the flows turned on again, there's a safety issue here because um, anybody who fishes the Madison a lot knows that bold wading is rewarded um, on the Madison mm -hmm. <laughs> with good fishing. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, the thing was, is there wasn't much bold wading due to the <laughs> due to the water being down. <laughs> so right. um, there was definitely, you know, a chance for people to get stranded in places uh, or 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 worse. So, you know, then we kind of got that message from them. Hey, there's a public safety issue here. Plus, you know, we you know, we can't do a mass education at work, uh, like effort right now so that everybody knows what a trout red looks like. Yes. Um, I think it was really, you know about balancing the impact you know i think at a certain point we felt um you know we being like just this coalition of people that um you know we were going to get to a point of diminishing returns if we didn't try and move those fish you know it was it was and even now i'm kind of looking back on it and there were definitely fish that we moved that day that given how fast the water came back on they probably would have been okay um depending on whether it had frozen that night or not um so it was a really tough, I think it was a tough situation because we didn't know exactly how long it was going to take for the water to get back on. It was hard to know whether to leave fish in places. Um, you know, we had all these people who blessed their hearts came out to help, but I mean, you know, they were people of varying, uh, you know, levels of fisheries education, um, as to, you know, even what spawning fish look like. So, um, it was a really, it was a really, I think, difficult situation, but all in all, I mean, I thought it was amazing. You know, everybody we saw who was working that day, uh, was really, you know, listening, uh, taking directions from FWP staff and, uh, and the Northwestern energy staff who were there to help. Um, you know, it was pretty orderly considering I bet over 300 people showed up to try and help, um, riverwide. So, um, it was, it was a pretty cool thing to see and definitely a feel good story for me. Like one of the feel good stories of the year, I would say, you know, everything that I did read said that everyone who came together, just no matter what area, whether it was Northwestern mm -hmm. energy, whether it was everyone came together and, uh, worked together and it was like, let's save the river. Like let's put whatever issues we have behind us and mm -hmm. let's put our energy into this. Um, I know you were talking about spawning fish and what red beds, trout reds look like. Can you give mm -hmm. a little information about sure. for listeners who don't know what that is and what that looks like? Sure. So, you know, pretty much all salmonids of which trout are a member, um, you know, they lay their eggs in what's called a red. Um, it's, it's spelled just like the color red, uh, but it's got an extra D. So, um, and, and the way that really works is the female, um, the female trout will essentially uh, dig out some gravel uh, to lay her eggs in. And the reason they do this is that they really need their eggs to have a constant supply of fresh oxygen um, in order for those eggs to stay viable. 
And so what they do is they use their tail, their whole body in, in, in general to clean all of, you know, all of that sediment and little algae and all that stuff out of the gravel so that they can lay their eggs in a nice, you know, clean, well aerated place. Um, usually if you're walking the river um, and you want to, you know, a lot of fish, especially brown trout, uh, they'll look to like the tails of pools, um, which is a which is a scary thing because that's where people like to cross the river. You know, and that's that's where I like to cross the river is where it's shallow and not too swift. Um, and, and those are also happen to be places where where trout really like to lay their eggs. So um, so, you know, anytime you're walking the river and you see a patch of completely clean gravel, that's a depression, um, you know, that where the all the gravel around it still has like that algae coat on it. It's a really good sign that that's probably a red um, and it's it's just good good practice to not walk in it not don't step in it and also don't step in the pillow of gravel that's behind it um, that the fish kind of kicks up because a lot of the eggs end up getting into that pillow of gravel um, and so when the you know anyway when the female lays her eggs the male comes in and uh, fertilizes those eggs and uh, there's all sorts of cool things we could talk about with that process but I'll leave that to John McMillan, <laughs> who does a much better <laughs> job of describing it than me. Those um, are just good reminders, though, because as anglers, you you sometimes look at like where the fly needs to go or where you're, mm -hmm. you know, but you're never really thinking about where your feet are stomping on. And yep. so it does probably give you um, another reminder. This whole situation gives you a reminder of how as um, anglers and people who love the river, like how delicate things are the yeah. ecosystem is and how it can change drastically within 12 hours. I mean, we could have, it could have been more dramatic than what it sounds. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think that was one of the, the things I said right away. I mean, when we crossed, you know, we got into Ennis about a little before nine and I had missed the break off point at the grocery store, but Josh had hooked up with um, a crew that was going up to between the lakes. And so I had been communicating with him and I was like, well, we'll join you. Um, and then we can, you know, we can do some, some social media with that group. Uh, and obviously that's where the impacts the greatest and probably where we're needed. So that's where we went. Um, but when we crossed the bridge in Ennis, you know, I looked over the, over the side of the bridge and I was like, well, it's, it's low, but you know, I mean, there's water in the river. Um, and, and I think that was kind of like, um, you know, that, that was, that was kind of, uh, very, uh, I guess I, I felt a big sense of relief, you know, cause yeah. I, I wasn't sure just how bad it was going to be, you know? Um, and you know, it was, it, it felt good to see that there was water in the river. You know, I immediately took a photo when we were running up there, you know, you have really intermittent cell service there, uh, which is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Actually enjoy it most of the time. <laughs> Me um, too. But, uh, you know, you get a little bit of uh, service kind of near Palisades uh, for a split second there. And so I took a photo of Palisades um, just because I was like, hey, there's still water in the river, people. Like, you know, because, um, you know, we were getting people calling from all over the world being like, how bad is it? Once we got up near $3, you could start to see the impacts more, you know, side channels that weren't flowing anymore, but still had a little bit of water in them, maybe, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but when we got up between the lakes, you know, it was like pretty, uh, <clears throat> yeah, pretty stark. So, um, but Did I think you it's see a lot of dead fish. 
Um, I didn't, you know, I do think that some dead fish were actually arranged for photos, um, which, you know, okay, I can, under- there was a, I can there understand. There were some fish but- I saw that were like piled together. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, is are they just all laying on the side of the bank? And Yeah. I mean, th- th- we certainly lost some fish. I mean, there's definitely some fish that died, um, you know, adult fish. This wasn't just a, a thing that impacted, um, you know, a lot of these brown trout that were spawning were already super stressed out. Um, you know, it's a very taxing process for them to spawn. Um, and so, you know, a few of the larger brown trout we moved into the main channel, you know, you could tell that they were, um, you know, they needed to start eating again. <laughs> and rest. And a lot of the fish we saved though were juveniles. Um, I think the, probably most of the fish we saved were sculpin, just an incredible number of sculpin in the, in the Madison. Um, if, uh, if you're a streamer angler, um, I don't think there's, there's many other flies I would tie on in the Madison based on what I saw. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, now I Um, took a new level of reading the water. I mean, if, if you're looking for an attractor response, maybe not, but if, if you're looking to imitate the forage, uh, sculpin's probably a pretty good bet. We did get into some of the side channels below, um, cabin Creek, and we did find quite a few juvenile trout in those channels and were able to move quite a few. I think Josh, um, John and I were able to move probably 300 to 400 trout out of the one on the river left side. And, uh, you know, we had a backpack shocker, which made it a lot easier. Uh, honestly, it was really difficult because nets were, were hard to use. Um, the puddles were so shallow, it was really difficult to be able to even get a net underneath like a fingerling trout. So, um, you know, it was really kind of all, all hands literally on deck. Um, you know, keep your hands wet. If you see one, try and grab it as soon as you can. I mean, there were many that we couldn't get. I mean, it's, it's amazingly hard to catch trout even when they're stunned (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, (laughs) so i can tell from tell you that from just being a fish tech for years before i um you know got into conservation but um yeah pretty pretty cool though um just to see i think how well people did just with the whole process in general it was pretty incredible did you have to like dunk them in water for a little bit before to get their, you know, to get them like moving yeah, and so, then put them in the water? Yeah. So the, I mean, there was definitely some, the electroshock basically stuns them. Um, you know, it kind of depends on the fish and how close they are to the electrodes as to how, you know, how long they're stunned for. Um, you know, we were carrying buckets. Um, and so, you know, we were basically just throwing them in the buckets to recover. Um, when most of the fish in the bucket had recovered, we'd immediately take them out to the main river, cross over the island, wherever we were, and and dump them in the main river. Um, so, you know, some of those fish, I'm, I'm sure, you know, probably didn't survive that process, but a lot of them did. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we saved them from, you know, predation from, you yeah. know, who knows, all sorts of herons, uh, raccoons, you name it. Um. I'm sure bears would get in there and eat them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Ennis has a lot of bears. Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah, we, we were thinking about having bear spray on us, but I was like, it's pretty cold. I think they're probably asleep, <laughs> but <laughs> I swear there's a reason why at elk camp now, cause we kind of go in grizzly country. And actually I think that's where they technically, and it's near that area. That's where they leave all the problem bears that are just, you know, yeah. they, like leave <laughs> oh, them out there. And I told Justin, I'm like, listen, I am not, I am not sleeping in a tent. I'm just, 
I smell good. <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> no, but I'd rather uh, know what's going to happen to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh gosh. And so, I mean, that is all just so real things that are happening. I mean, you are in, Ennis is also uh, off the map, still very isolated from um, big cities, really. Mm. Um, so it's good to hear that um, a community of people, because I mean, as Justin and I were sitting here getting the news, I was like, do you need to drive down there? It, mm -hmm. Then it'd be like, hold off, hold off. I was like, well, let's just give it a few minutes, because it did seem that at any moment the water was going to be turned on. Yeah, in that in that in that respect, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Missoula Avalanche from uh, you know um, what about a yes. decade ago now. But you know, during that day, it was kind of the same thing. Like you know, something bad happens, you know, that really brings people together. Everybody wants to rush down there and help, you know. Yes. But at the same time, like you know, you have to ask yourself: Are you going to improve the situation? Are you going to make this a better situation? Um, or add and, to the chaos, or add of, to the the chaos of the situation. And I mean, I, that was ultimately the decision I came to with the Missoula Avalanche is, you know, I had a few friends that were uh, on on working for the Avalanche Center at that time. And and I was like, you know, I, I thought I might just cause more problems. And they were like, thanks, because, you know, people were digging holes that were filling other holes that people were digging, you know, and um, you just yeah. have to, you know, in a crisis situation like that, it, you know, and, and maybe that's really what the lesson from this should be is that we, you know, we really should consider some kind of a emergency fisheries response so that, you know, we have tools available, um, you know, in case things like this happen. So there's a chain of command, you know, there's a, you know, I mean, Absolutely. I think that's really what the one thing, the one takeaway from this for me, it, you know, aside from how awesome it is and how much people love the Madison um, right. is, is that, you know, we really need some kind of a way to deal with these situations so that they're controlled um, and that, you know, we're doing the best thing for the fishery. Well, and especially when you have so many other organ organizations involved, it's mm -hmm. hard to figure out who's going to be the chief of operations of the, you know, cause each one has their own person that's in charge. It reminds mm -hmm. me of, Actually, you know what they what we what there should be is I worked on a show called Backcountry Rescue, and it was on the Teton Rescue, and these are all volunteers, and each person had their role. There was a helicopter, there was a chief of operations, there was the you know the map coordinator, and maybe if we end up having a, you know all volunteer base on Madison River, like if something goes down, this is the chief of operations, this is the you know, the biologist on hand and mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe we can start thinking of something like that because it is, that's just strictly for the Madison river and also the Clark Fork river is because I think what we're realizing is with the um, Hebgen dam is that there's a lot of infrastructure and dams that really, if they fail, it can be catastrophic. Yep. It sure can. It sure can. And, you know, I mean, one of the, it's, that's definitely one of the reasons we supported the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, is, you know, there's a lot in there that there's a lot in infrastructure that has a lot to do with trout. You know, you know, most people think of infrastructure as being, Oh, a highway, a road, a bridge, a bridge. Yeah. Um, but even a bridge, just in how we build a bridge, um, you know, there's fisheries considerations there. So dams are obviously, you know, a big part of that. And we have several in Montana that are on, um, you know, top notch fisheries. Uh, so, you know, by all means, I think we need to make sure that, that these, 
that these structures are up to code and um, that maintenance is getting done as it should be. So what is our confidence level right now with the Hebgen Dam? Do we feel like it's, it's going <laughs> to be okay for I this? Can't, I can't speak to that. I mean, um, you know, this was a gate malfunction. I think that's important to remember. You know, I mean, there's a big part of this dam that was not affected by this in any way. It's the part that holds the water back. Um, but, you know, I, I really don't, you know, I don't want to speculate too much yeah. on that. That's really not, that's not my place but, you know, I know a lot of people are, are calling for that, you know, to be investigated. Um, and, you know, I think I think that we all have an interest in making sure these, you know, these pieces of infrastructure are sound and, uh, you know, are, are up to date and and ready for events like a potential earthquake, you know, in yeah. the Yellowstone region. Um, there was a small earthquake before this malfunction. So I know there was some speculation that might have had something to do with it from a few people. Really? Um, I had no clue that happened. Yeah, it was a very small one. Okay. We always read those newspapers that says, when is Yellowstone going to blow? And mm-hmm. it says, which areas will be completely destroyed? And I know I'm in the completely destroyed area as well as you are. <laughs> An earthquake, you know, yes, we should be prepared for, uh, you know, if Yellowstone blows up, I think Hebgen Dam will be the least of our problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the end of the world now. We're, we're, we're talking about <laughs> some, we might be vaporized before we even know the dam's gone. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about, it went from Hebgen Dam to now just the whole world is just, um, but yeah. it is hard when things start to malfunction like that, that it mm-hmm. just seems like the whole world is starting to fall apart. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to, I know that the dams are getting older and things need to be, the infrastructure needs to be updated, but it's hard when you have temperatures are higher than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. And then you have a dam that's breaking. You're like, what else? You have the virus. It just feels like right now the earth is like screaming at us, like take better care of me. Um, And especially now with the loss of obviously some fish that we will see, what is your role going to be or what do you, what is Trout Unlimited going to be wanting to see come, uh, come spring? Well, you know, I mean, we are, I, I probably should have started the whole podcast with this, but you know, Montana Trout Unlimited, um, we we're the state council for all 13 chapters here in the state of Montana. Um, our, our, our mission is to conserve, protect and restore Montana's cold water fisheries and their watersheds. And, you know, we're a very science-based organization. Um, I, and I guess that's what we would like to see. We would like to see us lead with science uh, on yes. this issue. You know, Always. there's a lot of social issues going on in the Madison um, right now with use. Um, and, you know, there's a big part of that that is, that is aesthetic. Um, it's an aesthetic thing. Um, there's probably parts of that that are a biolog- biological impact at the same time. But really, we're a science-based organization, and we're concerned about the fishery. Um, and so, you know, I think any any response we would like to see should be based, you know, on on the biology and the, and the and what the what our fisheries managers are seeing on the ground. From our personal perspective, I think you know we're really supporting a voluntary closure of the Madison uh, for the winter. Uh, not the entire river, but you know at least the areas that were impacted by this dewatering event. You mentioned this could have been worse. It certainly could have been worse if it happened in the summer. Um, we would have we would have had a much greater impact, at least on adult and juvenile fish. 
um, just because of water temperatures would have skyrocketed in those dewatered areas. Um, and there would not have been very much oxygen in that water. The fish would have survived for a much shorter period of time. So, you know, we're really just asking folks to, you know, take it upon themselves uh, to, to give the Madison a little break, especially, you know, above $3 bridge uh, and let those fish recover. Um, FWP did have an emergency closure uh, on the river for a number of days during the event. And basically what they used to do that closure was our drought, our emergency drought rules. Um, so when the river, you know, drop below, you know, that target flow, they were able to close it immediately. Um, the problem with using that regulation then is that once the flows are back up, you're no longer hitting, you're no longer hitting that trigger. So any, you know, more lengthy official closure of the Madison would have to go through a more formal rulemaking process. Um, it would involve the Fish and Game Commission. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't know what their tools are that they that they do have uh, to use, but um, it might take them a while to implement them, even if they you know, if they did so choose to implement them. And so for that reason, we're just, you know, basically asking people, hey, um, there's a bunch of great places to fish in the middle of the winter in Montana. Um, mm -hmm. There's a ton of them. And uh, so, you know, if you're looking to do some midwinter fishing this year, um, give those fish a break. Uh, it'll certainly help the reds out for you not to be walking around the river. Um, it'll let some of those fish that were stressed out uh, from that event, you know, recover without, you know, having any hooking mortality going on in that stretch. So, um, you know, uh, it's, it's basically just what we, you know, I asked uh, Clayton Elliott, our government affairs director about this and what he thought of the idea. And he's like, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I really think that's it, you know, so, you know, we all have a, a hunting and fishing ethic and, you know, and that involves fair chase. And I think that uh, these fish have earned a, a little break from, you know, from us for a little while. So um, we just respectfully ask that if you're going to go fishing, find a different place, maybe fish down river on the Madison if, if you're you know stuck in that area or whatever. Absolutely. Even this summer when the water was so warm and it still wasn't shut down. Uh, I remember Jess and I just walked down to the Clark Fork just to see what the temperature was. And it mm -hmm. was at 10 o'clock. It was, it was warm. And yep. I just thought to myself, how in the world could a fish survive this, get caught and then put back in this warm water? There's no way. So I think what you said is just do the right thing is mm -hmm. about sometimes the rules aren't there and, and you are allowed to do it, but just do what's right. And yeah, and we saw that this summer. I mean, we saw yeah. that this summer across the board. I mean, I did get some stories from people who were like, I saw someone putting in at one, you know, and, and most of those people were, you know, a family or something like that. Um, you know, a, yeah. a, a lot of a lot of people were, were, were self-regulating this summer. Um, and Absolutely. I think, you know, it's probably a subject for, for a whole nother show, honestly. But, you know, one thing that we're really trying to keep the focus on, and I mentioned this before we kind of went live, but... Um, you know, the droughts, the droughts not over obviously, but it's not hot out anymore. So, mm -hmm. um, we want to keep the focus on drought, uh, even though it's not hot anymore, even though we're able to fish all day now, um, because, you know, one, we're not out of this drought yet. Uh, we're it's starting to look a little better this morning. Um, but we're not out of this drought yet. Number one, number two, these droughts are going to keep happening you know, more and more frequently. And, 
and we need to be prepared for them. So, you know, the two things that MTU is working on with regard to that um, is one, doing a better job with our Hoot Owl uh, regulations, yes. updating them if we can, making them more responsive. You know, from my perspective, I like to see them consider minimum temperatures or a mean temperature because, you know, a lot of times we're not getting water temperatures dropping low enough in the evening hours to, you know, really give the fish much of a break. Um, so even though they're technically below 65 degrees, they're not below 65 degrees for more than like an hour or two. So that's one, one thing that we're really interested in, in looking into is how can we give our fisheries managers more flexibility, um, to, to institute those closures and then to remove them when they're no longer needed. Uh, and then the second thing is really, um, and, and it's, it, it is actually encouraging to us to see some movement from the governor's office on this, but drought management planning, all of us use the river everybody yes Um, we all need that water um and so you know we know we live in a state with prior appropriation as far as water law is concerned but um but that really necessitates the fact of bringing as many people as possible to the table to plan for these droughts um the jefferson i think is a good example um yes the impacts were terrible on the jefferson this summer with the drought um but in 1988 without drought management planning, the Jefferson dried up. This year, there was a little bit of water in the, in the Jefferson. And, and the reason there was a little bit of water in the Jefferson was because of the people who, who made that decision uh, to come together to try and keep some water in the river. We'd like to see more watershed-based you know, drought management planning. Uh, the Smith is a really high priority watershed for us. Uh, having, seeing it, seeing the, the float season there close so early this year, um, was was scary. That's one of the reasons I'm going to have uh, Montana Fly Fishing Connection guys on to talk about this uh, um, on Wednesday night um, on our uh, Instagram channel or Instagram Live. But uh, but you know th- that's another focus area for us. We want to see regulations that that are are actually you know responsive and protecting the fishery in real time uh, and you know forward thinking drought management planning so that the next time we have a severe drought, um, we can we can do a better job of working together to keep more water in the river. So it, when you're talking about like drought management, um, and sorry, because I'm not really mm-hmm. well versed in this, but you're talking about what to do when the drought happens or how do we keep water flowing? I think it's both. Um, okay. You know, from my perspective, it's both. Um, for, from, you know, it's definitely important to bring everybody to the table, you know, irrigators, outdoorsmen and women, um, you know, bring as many different parties to the table as possible. Um, but we, it, but it's really a, about shared sacrifice. You know, it, it really is, it comes down to that and like everybody gives a little bit and that puts a little more water in the river. You know, the other tools we have are in-stream flows. Um, that's something that, you know, both Trout Unlimited uh, at the national level and Montana TU uh, continues to work on is, you know, finding ways to increase in-stream flows, um, retiring water rights, uh, changing water rights, making a change of use to in-stream flow yes. from an irrigation use. Um, you know, it's it's often called like the death of a thousand cuts, but it's kind of like the healing of a thousand I don't know, band-aids maybe. Yeah, <laughs> so, I love that. I love you that. Know, <laughs> you know, each one of these little, you know, couple CFS at a time, um, when you add all that stuff up, it makes a difference. Because there's some really old 
old dated rules and regulations, especially when it comes to irrigation, that in order to mm-hmm. be considered a farmer, you need to use this much water. You have to use it or you lose it. Um, that's kind yeah, of a, a long standing, uh, you know, Western water law tenant. Um, first in time is first in right. So the first person to file, um, you know, has seniority and then use it or lose it is the other one. If you don't use it, um, then somebody else, you know, obviously, sh- you know, the, the original thinking was someone else should be able to use it. Um, I don't want to get too into water rights. My right. boss, David Brooks, just did a great uh, podcast uh, on the Orvis podcast. Uh, you can check oh, it wonderful. out uh, where he he gets kind of gets into the more of the nitty gritty of Montana water law. Um, I did go to law school and study water law, but I don't keep it fresh in my brain. So, um, oh, once I graduated school, I think I lost all of my <laughs> algebra, cosine, tangent. No, you can't tell me how fast a train's coming. I right mean, now. the, I, the <laughs> odds of us making a large scale change uh, to Montana water law, I would say, are slim. Um, however, I think the opportunities for us to improve DMPs, as we call them, drought management plans for specific watersheds, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think that there's going to be more buy-in, um, just because this is a reality. It's not going away. It's going to keep happening. Um, and you know, just like with the water compact on the Flathead Reservation, it is beneficial for people to know how much water they're going to have. Like if they can plan ahead for it, even if it's not going to be what they want, if they can plan for it, that's good, you know. Um, right. So Knowledge is power. Yep, exactly. And so, you know, that's that's really what our, our policy focus is, you know, I'd say is trying to keep that focus on the drought, remind people, you know, this is a wild trout management state. All of our, you know, all of our trout streams are, you know, majority wild reproduction. Um, and so we have to manage our rivers for that. We can't just throw more trout in. We have to give them the conditions uh, that they need to, to reproduce. And that's what's put us on the map is like one of the one of the number one fishing destinations for trout in the entire world is that very thing. So, well, and the other thing is, is you know, when those water temperatures get really high, I mean, there's some other options that you can do as Montanans to enjoy the outdoors. Oh, totally. I go bass fishing. It I bugs was about to say pike boss. fishing. Justin loves <laughs> pike fishing. He loves <laughs> popping those things on the head. <laughs> he was like, you know, it's maybe we shouldn't say that you're a bass fisherman on your bio (laughs) on the website. And I'm like, Hey, I love bass fishing. I grew up doing it. And that's how I learned to fly fish. Cause you know, me too. Perch. And then all of a sudden, so I've, I've, I've caught, I've caught large mouth, but just recently small mouth. Small mouth are awesome, man. I was like, why is this not been part of my life now? I'm obsessed with it. I keep asking Justin, I'm like, when I want to go small mouth, he's like, oh, you'd love, you'd love tarpon. I'm like, oh, you bring it. Yeah. I still, I mean, I'm, I, I'd say I trout fish 90% of the time, but when it gets really hot in the summer, um, yeah, I certainly go to look for and warm, pike? warm and cool water species. Pike make great tacos. That's what I was um, just about to say. I mean, it, they taste amazing. We have, our freezer is full now, and we have some fish on top of it. It's like a surf and turf paradise um, on come. Yeah, or does <laughs> Justin do the pickle? Does he pickle them? No, 
I've never even heard of pickling. Oh, uh, so so yeah, this is something I don't. I haven't. I haven't tried it too much yet. But um, but if you know, if you pickle the pike, it actually helps dissolve a lot of those bones. So you don't even have to do like the special filleting technique or anything. You can just leave the Y bones in, um, and like over time, the acids just kind of dissolve those bones. No way. Uh, but it's quite tasty. And, yeah, you just it's basically like adding a protein punch to anything. You know, you can just kind of. <laughs> break some I'm up gonna have to, i'm gonna have to have him try it because we he does the special his good buddy bill owens taught mm-hmm. him how to fillet without the bones but sometimes we'll be sitting at the table and we'll be like with the kids like just you know make sure when you chew just be chew careful. and don't just swallow <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> don't want to get a bone launched in there um so um, with the Madison, the plan is that Trout Unlimited is going to go out there, assess. Will there be more information um, coming like in the next like year or so that we'll see, hey, this is what needs to happen. Let's keep our keep our distance. Um, like what's the next plan? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly monitoring that. Um, you know, we work really closely with our fisheries folks at Fish, Wildlife and Parks. Our main source of information that we were using to share throughout that process was coming from from the biologists. Uh, and so, you know, like I said, we're going to continue to rely on what, what they see. Um, I think that this was a wake up call for a lot of people, um, Mm -hmm. on just, you know, I think we've been concerned about the health of the Madison fishery and just all the, the fisheries in Southwest Montana, um, you know, due to recent trends. So, um, hopefully, you know, hopefully this will, will embolden, you know, and encourage people to, you know, to want to protect that resource. So if we get new information on it, we will certainly be sharing it. Uh, and, you know, we'll certainly be, you know, closely monitoring, uh, you know, what can be done in the future. Um, you know, likely that's going to end up being a legislative issue. So it probably will come into play the next time our legislator sits. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something um, from one of the legislators basically looking to, to, to avoid these situations in the future in some way, shape or form, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Um, you know, I think we're definitely going to have some impacts, uh, to this year's recruitment of brown trout, at least in the upper river. Um, but you know, we'll have to wait and see, uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Some of those eggs might've made it. It's hard to say it was pretty, pretty variable situation. Some reds were submerged the whole time. Some weren't, some, you know, might have frozen. Who knows? We'll we'll see. And fingers crossed. Fingers uh, crossed. And we'll say there's a bunch <laughs> of brown trout in Quake Lake. They're gonna spawn again. So um these you know trout are really well adapted to extreme events like this. Uh it's you know, if you know anything about steelhead, uh, you know, they space out the timing of their spawn, they space out where they spawn. Um, they have so many different life histories, uh, and, and probably a lot that we don't even know, honestly, just because we haven't really studied them in Montana. Um, (laughs) you know, native fish get studied a lot. Um, but you know, a lot of our, you know, non-native fish, we don't really study them all that much. Um, but yeah, I think it remains to be seen, but you know, I'm sure some of these brown trout, I mean, there were brown trout that had already spawned and left and probably already had eggs that hatched. There were brown trout that probably hadn't even come in to spawn yet. Um, and they do that, they do that to increase their chances of survival. So it'll, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what surveys say, I guess, in the future. Yeah. Well, I think it's still important as a human being to always look at the 
cup is half full for sure that we can still do some more because if like i said when all of this was going down i was like what is next like this is just <laughs> awful i feel awful what's going on and i think sometimes you need to take a break and try and be positive like this is this could have been worse we now know that there's some infrastructure going on with the hebgen dam let's all take a time to like you said the way that what you realize is that maybe there needs to be better protocols of like who, what happens when something like this yeah, happens? Like, sure. what is this going to look like? Let's have a game plan. Yeah, we need just kind of like if there's a fire, you know, if you have a fire in your house, you know, you you all talk with your family members. This is how we leave the house safely. Exactly. And this is our meeting spot. And maybe we just need to just have even a meeting spot and figure out where we're going to meet and what actions will be taking place and what numbers need to be called. Because I think also reading that was also is that Northwestern energy was just calling the landline mm -hmm. and it was like, can we just directly talk to someone? This is an actual emergency on your yeah. machines. And exactly. so maybe now that that's happened, that will, that will change. And I hope that it does. I know that you said that you have some live events coming this Wednesday. Yep. Um, this podcast will already be, will be airing on Tuesday. So they will oh. be missing the, this news. Is there a way that this will be recorded that they can listen to earlier or, and also ways that they can keep in touch with you and also Montana Tron Unlimited? For sure. Um, you can follow us, of course, on Instagram, Facebook. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Um, we will be doing an Instagram live event on Wednesday night. Uh, it's a little fly tying uh, and conservation talk about the Smith River uh, with some longtime Smith River uh, guides, getting their perspective on uh, just the drought and how it's affected the river. And uh, we will be posting that into our feed. So if you uh, miss the live, uh, you can catch up uh, at a later time in our Instagram feed. And uh, kind of working towards getting a podcast going, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> Slowly dipping my toes in. Just dive in. <laughs> and I guess I'd just like to say, you know, um, I think we need to find a balance here between, you know, the sky is falling, as you said. Uh, and yes. Oh, this isn't that big a deal. I think it's it's somewhere in the middle. And, you know, I think we need to remember that this river got blocked for three days once um, by a landslide. And uh, I actually watched. A, when was that? 1957, 58. Oh, I think. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Big earthquake. Uh, you know, the whole side of the mountain broke off. Uh, a bunch of people were killed because they were camping in their tents and were just buried under a what? landslide. Um, it's a crazy, crazy story. Formed Quake Lake, um, which we all know is a great fishing location, but it was used to be the Canyon of the Madison. It was a beautiful canyon there before it uh, sealed up. But uh, actually watched a presentation on maximum and minimum flows. And as low as the Madison did get during this event, it did not get as low <laughs> as it did for three days when... Uh, it took it took the river three days to basically work its way through the landslide, um, and that's why uh, the slide portion of the river is pretty much unboatable. Uh, okay. So yeah. So if you're ever wondering when you look up from Kelly's place why it looks like um, you know the wildest whitewater you've ever seen, that's that's why because the river just cut its way through all of that stuff. Um, and, the, and the trout came back. So, you know, we didn't have that severe an event. Um, obviously, we're just relying on natural reproduction now to restock the river. But, um, you know, the river will 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 bounce back and uh, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully soon.
Right, you gotta have a little bit of faith because once you lose faith in the water system, that's when things start to fall apart. Trout, trout are incredible. If you give them a chance, like all you gotta do is give them a chance. You know, you just gotta give them a chance. If you give them a chance, it's amazing what they can do. You know, they they really are are super well adapted um, to these environments. So we just gotta give them the conditions they need, just like. You know, making sure a seed gets all of the necessary nutrients and things that it needs and sun and water, it's the same thing, you know, but they take care of themselves if we take care of the river, so. I love that. Now you got to take care of their home. Um, and Bill, what is, is there an Instagram if people just want to follow on your journey or maybe they have some questions? Yeah, so you can, you can follow me personally on Instagram uh, at Wywoka West, W-I-W-O-K-A-W-E-S-T. Um, you can follow Montana Trout Unlimited on Instagram at just all spelled out, no spaces, Montana Trout Unlimited. And I also have to say that sometimes when you feel like you can't be present to help out, people always, organizations love money. So you can always donate to Montana Trout Unlimited, which I know donate. that money goes towards, right? Yep. So if you can't be there, you can just, you can give the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And we have some really awesome projects going on right now. Um, you know, we're finishing with the help of Winston. Um, we're finishing... Uh, and, and also, uh, Paul Mosley, we're finishing up the Willow Springs restoration, uh, on the Yellowstone or on the Jefferson. I'm sorry. Uh, Willow Springs Creek is one of the main spawning tributaries of the lower Jefferson. Um, and you know, it's been a legacy project of TUs for, for many years now, but, um, it's a beautiful little spring Creek. Uh, so we're finishing up that project. Um, we have this really cool project going on in the middle fork of the Judith river, uh, which is a little off of most people's radar, um, the Judith, but uh, it's a really incredible um, canyon. Looks like a little mini Smith River, uh, but we're relocating a Jeep trail there and minimizing some river crossings. Um, it's going to be a really cool little backcountry fishery. <laughs> oh my gosh, so, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you so much for joining me again today, Bill. And um, like I said, keep up the fight and Will do. keep us posted on any updated information when it comes to the Madison or any other upcoming projects. We certainly will. Uh, thanks so much, Lauren, for having me on. And uh, yeah, please give the Madison a break this winter. Give it a break. We all need a break. Yeah, Have, no kidding. Let it be your ex. Let it be your ex girlfriend, <laughs> boyfriend, whatever it is. Just she does. She needs her space right yeah, now. Give her some space. <laughs> Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.